Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. As she reached out to open the door to the den, the maid was struck by a paralyzing feeling of foreboding. She couldn't explain why, but she simply couldn't open that door. She turned to the elderly woman of the house and suggested she turn the knob instead. That woman, a staid, gray-haired grandmother named Mrs. Hull, said she didn't feel much better than the maid about the situation, but still managed to at least push the door open. Mr. Burdick, she called out. No answer. She called again. Still nothing. She switched to her son-in-law's Christian name. Edwin! Hearing nothing again, Mrs. Hull backed away from the door and said, I think something bad has happened. And then she gave the maid some peculiar instructions. Finish breakfast. You know, go, go in and finish cooking breakfast. Author Kimberly Tilly. When you're done go to the corner drugstore and call the doctor and see if he could come over and take a look at Mr. Burdick. This was odd because even though the year was 1903 and the telephone was barely 25 years old, the Burdicks were wealthy enough that theirs was among the estimated 2 million U.S. households to have its own phone line. And the whole point of having such a luxury was to make life more convenient, especially in a crisis. If you think that somebody's seriously ill... You know, you would probably use the phone in your house, but she didn't want the maid to use the phone in the house. She's like, no, you'll you'll alarm the girls. The girls in question were Mrs. Hull's three granddaughters, the offspring of the presumably ill Edwin Burdick. The maid was a bit confused, but did as she was told, and with the family doctor's arrival, felt relieved that someone finally had the fortitude to enter the den, only to find a nightmarishly grisly scene. Edwin Burdick wasn't only dead, but he'd been bludgeoned by one of his own golf clubs. The crime hit all of the hottest turn-of-the-century taboos needed to ensure it would be a national scandal. Money, sex, betrayal, and an intriguing list of possible killers. From an outsider's point of view, it looked like Edwin Burdick was living the dream. He was handsome, rich, and successful, married to a beautiful socialite in Buffalo, New York. Few people know his story better than Kimberly Tilly, who wrote the book Cold Heart. Edwin Burdick was a entrepreneur of sorts. He came from a middle-class background. He had worked his way up at this paper factory to actually becoming the president and the co-owner of it. He was heavily involved in two paper companies, in fact, one bearing his name, E.L. Burdick & Co., and also the Buffalo Envelope Company. His professional success bought his family a beautiful Victorian home on Ashland Avenue in one of Buffalo's richest areas. 
Elmwood Village near Millionaire's Row. He was a very mild-mannered kind of guy, and he liked the finer things in life, I think you could say. He, he became the president of his golf club, and he was also really prominent in this local dance club that they had. And he was local royalty of a sort, so everybody knew who he was, everybody knew who his wife was. That wife was named Alice. The two had married in 1885 and had been the kind of couple that others in town wished they could emulate. They were prominent enough that their comings and goings were considered noteworthy, routinely gracing the society pages of the local newspapers. Even Alice's outfits made the papers. She was a beautiful dresser, right? So she was a lot of the things that people would talk about with her was like just how, how lovely her dresses were and how beautiful her manners were. But there was an air of naughtiness around them, too. Ed and Alice were part of a social group that the press had dubbed the Elmwood Avenue Set, which consisted of about 20 wealthy couples. The group was rumored to throw wild parties and drink to excess, though nothing had ever been substantiated. And anyway, the tawdry rumors helped elevate their mystique. Ed and Alice had three daughters, 15-year-old Marion, 13-year-old Carol, and 10-year-old Alice. They all lived together in the Ashland Avenue home, along with Alice's parents, well, until her father's death in 1899, after which only her mother remained. The family also had a few servants who lived on the third floor of the house. Alice didn't come from money. In fact, her father, James Hull, left behind nothing to care for his wife, So the fact that Maria Hull lived comfortably in a posh house in a rich neighborhood was thanks entirely to her son-in-law. Mrs. Hull, as the papers referred to her, helped raise the children, which was needed because Alice didn't particularly relish the job. Alice wasn't really like a hands-on type of mother. You know, she was much more concerned about going out and how she looked and everything. And so her mom did a lot of like the child raising and was probably closer to the girls. And um, her mom was very strict, proper kind of woman, but she had this presence, you know, you could, you could almost feel it. Like when she walked in, she was just a very like dark, restrained type of presence, but you got the feeling always that she was sort of in control of whatever was happening in the house. As far as Ed knew, he was a successful, happily married guy with a beautiful family until he learned he wasn't. That hard lesson came New Year's Day of 1901. Ed and Alice had hosted a party ringing in the New Year with some of their closest friends. Among those friends were Arthur and Carrie Pennell, another couple within the Elmwood Avenue set. The Pennells and the Burdicks were very close, so much so that they'd gone on vacations together. The friendship started on the golf course. Ed and Arthur had that love in common. Plus, they were both wealthy, intelligent, and high-profile in the community. They were really well-liked because they were just nice guys. Where you saw their differences was in their personalities. While Ed was cheerful and optimistic, Arthur was a brooding sort. Ed was the sports pages to Arthur's book of poetry. Toward the end of this New Year's party, Carrie Pennell approached Ed with some news. You know your wife and my husband are having an affair, don't you? And he didn't believe her. He just shook it off like, no, there's no way. That's not true. But Carrie insisted. No, seriously, it's happening. It's been going on for years. They write each other love letters. Hell, they were just together yesterday afternoon. 
And after everyone left their party that evening, he told his wife about it, expecting that she would just blow it off or be angry about it maybe or or laugh at it, but she didn't. And her reaction basically told him that it was true. She was defensive. She was evasive about the details. And Ed just knew as he was talking to her, oh my God, this is really true. This really happened. Once Ed realized this, something dawned on him. His wife had always been awfully guarded about a locked tin box that she had. He never really thought much about it, but now he was certain that the box contained evidence. He demanded that Alice open it. At first she refused, but as she would later testify, she was persuaded after Ed grabbed her by the throat and started to squeeze. Inside the tin box were letters from Arthur Pennell, and it was clear that what Carrie had told him only scratched the surface. In the letters, Arthur referred to Alice as, My love, my life, my dearest one. He described finding her gloves and kissing them. I smoothed them out and kissed every finger because they had touched you. The next day, Ed left the house. He needed some time to think, he said. Alice, for her part, insisted that she would end the affair. It had started in 1898. The Pennells had invited both Burdicks to join them on vacation to Connecticut, but Ed's work schedule interfered, so he declined. But Alice still went. Arthur took her to the campus of his alma mater, Yale University in New Haven, and that's where their affair began. Now, two and a half years later, Ed finally knew about it. He desperately wanted to avoid divorce because in 1901, it was socially unacceptable. Less than 1% of married women had ever been divorced at that time in history. So it was, it was very unusual for there to be a divorce. After a few days in the hotel, Ed returned home, willing to forgive his wife for her transgressions so long as she promised the affair was over. Alice insisted that it was. But that was a lie. Arthur Pennell was a man in love. His letters dripped with sappy proclamations. After Alice Burdick told him that their affair had been discovered by her husband, he had no intention of ending things. Obviously, he couldn't send Alice letters to her home anymore. He wasn't an idiot. For years, she'd been intercepting them before her husband got home from work. Arthur had assumed she was destroying the letters and scolded her when he found out that she'd kept them but he had to communicate with her somehow, so he devised a scheme. Arthur was a very cautious guy. He was an attorney, and he was he was just careful. And he was very afraid that one day these letters would somehow turn up in the press or somehow get exposed, and he did not want that. So he came up with this elaborate plan to open a post office box, give Alice a key, and then he would send his letters to the post office box. She would read them there and then, you know, fold them up and keep them there. So that way they would never come to their home again. But Ed Burdick was a changed man after learning of the affair. Gone was the guy who never even considered that his wife would cheat on him. Now he was suspicious and shrewd. He knew letters weren't coming to the house anymore, but he suspected that they were still coming somewhere. And he went to the post office and he said, you know, I'm uh, Mrs. Burdick's brother and she wants me to have a key to her post office box and Security wasn't as tight as it is these days, and that was enough for the people at the post office. And they said, all right. So they gave him the key, 
And he started to read the letters and he realized that the affair had never stopped. Ed could have confronted Alice straight away, but he didn't. Instead, he continued his ruse that he was a brother and regularly checked the post office for new letters. Sometimes he even copied them. This lasted for months. When Ed did finally confront Alice, she denied the affair, but he had an absurd amount of evidence, so he knew she was lying straight to his face. He kicked her out and threatened divorce. This prospect was not appealing to Alice. She had a really nice life with him, and Arthur was married, and until Arthur wasn't married and they could go off and be together, then she was just going to be this divorced woman living alone, you know, kind of shamed by the whole situation, and she didn't want that. And so whenever he would threaten to divorce her, because he had threatened several times to do it, whenever he threatened, she would say, no, no, I I just want to work it out. Why don't you want to work it out with me? And she would be very manipulative. She did continue to work on his feelings and occasionally would say things about their girls, you know, like, do you you just want your girls to grow up without a father? Is that what you want? You know, and so he, he felt kind of like drawn back in every time. For two years, their marriage continued like this. Ed would find proof that the affair was continuing. Alice would promise to end it, but never did. Finally, as 1902 drew to a close, Ed hit his breaking point. He sent Alice away to a hotel in Atlantic City, and this time her entreaties didn't work. He was done. Things at home were a little awkward, though, because Mrs. Hull, Alice's mother, still lived in the house and helped with the children. At first, she supported and sided with Ed. As the situation festered, though, she gradually saw him as being at least partly to blame. Maybe if he'd been more attentive or assertive or something. She went so far as to consult her pastor whom she asked, Can you go talk to Ed about how horrible it would be if he actually divorced my daughter? Like, can you let him know that that would be very sinful and he should rethink that if that's what he's planning to do? The pastor did as requested, but still, Ed was unmoved. Next, Arthur Pennell demanded he reconsider. Arthur came to him and threatened him and said, you're going to ruin everybody's lives if you go through with this. And he said, it's too bad. You know, you should have thought of that for the years when I was pleading with you guys to stop this. Ed felt he had tried as hard as he could to save his marriage. Once he decided divorce was his only option, nothing could dissuade him from doing it. He filed through an attorney. Back then, irreconcilable differences was not grounds for divorce, but adultery was, and the filings tended to identify the lover. Ed named Arthur Pennell, which made it extra weird when Arthur Pennell signed up to be Alice Burdick's lawyer in the divorce. Through Arthur, Alice countersued her husband, claiming he was the adulterer. The Buffalo rumor mill ate all of this up. Finally, there was substance to the rumors that the Elmwood Avenue set was up to no good. The divorce was set to be finalized in early March 1903. Alice had been living in Atlantic City for about two months. About a week before the court date, Ed seemed to be in fine spirits, He was looking forward to finally being free of this sham of a marriage. Thursday, February 26th, started as a typical day in the post-Alice era of the Burdick home. Ed went to work, then left his office for a business meeting. On his way home, he bought a bottle of pre-mixed cocktails, which might sound benign, but it actually was kind of weird for him. 
Ed drank socially, but never alone. As far as anyone knew, he had no plans to be social that evening. He came home after work and had dinner with the family. And then after dinner, um, you know, they talked a little bit and then the girls went to bed and his his mother-in-law, Mrs. Hull, went to bed. And then Ed went down to his den where he would always go at night to read. All of this was perfectly normal, cocktail mix aside. Around 10.15 p.m., one of the servants, a woman named Maggie Murray, who cooked for the family, came home from a rare evening out. The sound of her locking the door apparently drew Ed's attention because a moment later, he emerged from his den to check out the noise. This led to an awkward moment with Maggie because Ed was only in his underwear. She was really embarrassed because he was a very formal man. So she just kind of looked away and, you know, went up to her room really quickly. And that was it. You know, that was the last time anybody saw him. Maggie typically awoke before everyone else in the house, and Friday, February 27th, was no exception. When she went downstairs to begin her morning routine, she was struck by how cold it was in the house. It had been brutally cold overnight, less than 20 degrees. HVAC systems weren't a thing yet, so houses relied on coal furnaces being regularly stoked. It was obvious no one had stoked the Burdick furnace in quite some time. To make matters even more bizarre, Maggie noticed the front door was standing open. Then she walked into the kitchen and saw that a window there was open too, snow from the sill having been brushed away. At this point, Maggie was certain there had been a break-in, so she rushed up to Ed's bedroom to rouse him. Strange thing, though, he wasn't in his room, and it appeared his bed hadn't been slept in at all. And she went back downstairs and somehow couldn't go in the den. Not because the den was locked or blocked or anything like that. Rather, Maggie was paralyzed with fear. She was certain that if she opened the door to the den, she would find a terrifying scene. She retreated and found Mrs. Hull, who approached the door and was similarly frozen. Mrs. Hull told the maid to open the door. The maid said, not a chance. They kind of argued about it a little bit, and then Mrs. Hull pushed open the door and the room was just completely dark. This is when she called his name in vain, as described at the top of the episode. Now, I'd mentioned earlier that Mrs. Hull's behavior that morning was a bit odd. She had Maggie finish breakfast and then go to the pharmacy to call for a doctor. But Mrs. Hull wasn't the only one who behaved a bit strangely. So did the family doctor, William H. Marcy, who obviously must be portrayed by William H. Macy in the biopic. William H. Marcy was the first to finally enter the den. Initially, he couldn't see anything. The room was too dark in the early morning hours. Dr. Marcy fumbled with the blinds to let a bit of light spill in. That illuminated blood on the floor and the walls. A man's nearly naked body was sprawled face down on a sofa. Pillows and rugs had been strewn atop the body. Dr. Marcy pushed past some pillows to uncover the man's head, which was wrapped in a bloody quilt. Marcy unwrapped the head just enough to know for certain that the dead man was Ed. He somberly went to inform Mrs. Hull, Madam, I regret to tell you that Mr. Burdick is deceased. He's been murdered. Mrs. Hull didn't seem to react. She walked into the kitchen and told the three Burdick children that their father was dead, as Dr. Marcy used the family phone to summon medical examiner John Howland. 
none of this was weird. Then someone spotted Mrs. Hull pulling Dr. Marcy aside and having a hushed conversation with him. That person, who was finally stoking the furnace in the basement, couldn't make out any of what the two were saying, but it seemed they were having an important conversation. It was after that, when Dr. Howland arrived, that Dr. Marcy did something inexplicable. He took Dr. Howland aside. If possible, could you make this out like it's a suicide? And the coroner was like, "Uh, it depends, you know, on what I find. And he wasn't really ready to go along with anything. But the doctor said, you know, there is there's some scandal here. Mr. Burdick and Mrs. Burdick were going to be divorced. I don't know if you knew that, but it would just be better if it looked like you committed suicide. So if you if possible, make sure that you find it that way. And the, and the coroner said, OK, if possible, I will. So he went into the room and he found Ed had been beaten to death and and had like his body was laying on the sofa and somebody had wrapped it up with like a quilt after the fact. And he looked up at the doctor and he was like, is this how you found the body? And the doctor was like, yeah. He said, well, no, I obviously cannot call this a suicide. There's no such thing as a suicide that looks like this. You don't even need a medical background at all to tell this is a murder. The manner of death was no question at all. But who done it? Well... That was another matter altogether. On February 28, 1903, the front page of the Los Angeles Herald blared, was killed in his own home, mysterious murder in Buffalo, Edwin L. Burdick, a leading citizen, the victim. After explaining who Edwin Burdick was to readers on the opposite side of the country, the story clunkily read, quote, The theory at first advanced that the crime was the work of a burglar was abandoned as the police probed deeper into the case and tonight, while they claim to have several important clues, no arrest has been made, end quote. Among the clues were two glasses that had been used to serve that pre-mixed cocktail that Ed had bought on his way home from work and a light spread of cheese and tarts. Also, while nothing of value was missing from the home, Ed's mail had been rifled through and strewn about. Police also determined that some of the scene had been staged, namely the open front door and kitchen window. The initial thought was that someone had broken in by climbing through the window and then fled through the front door, but there was no evidence to back that up. For example, with the window... The snow was brushed off the sill, but there were no footprints you know, outside. So whoever did it, did it from the inside. They brushed the snow off from the inside. Buffalo Police Chief Patrick Cusack released a statement to reporters, quote, From what investigations I have made, I would conclude that Mr. Burdick was called downstairs by a ring or a knock at the door after he was ready for bed. He evidently admitted someone he knew well and took the visitor into the den for a talk and to partake of the luncheon found there, end quote. He, of course, didn't mean luncheon, how we'd mean luncheon today. He just meant light meal. There apparently had been a struggle. Two fingers on Ed's left hand were broken, which Cusack said was likely from attempting to ward off a blow he saw coming. Now, there were several people who might have wanted Ed dead. His wife, for one. She desperately didn't want him to proceed with the divorce, but by now had figured out he wasn't backing down. But Alice was more than 400 miles away in Atlantic City at the time Ed was killed, and she had witnesses there to back that up. 
What about Carrie Pennell, Arthur's wife? Maybe she was worried that her husband would actually leave her for Alice. Maybe she went to visit Ed in hopes of convincing him to call off the divorce so that was less likely to happen. If he had said no, could she have been driven to murder? Or what if it had been another woman entirely? When they looked at the crime scene, I mean, like, they were they were discussing it at the time because it looked like Ed might have been in there with a woman. You know, I think he was mostly naked and there was some wine there and people thought, well, he's been on a date and it just went terribly, terribly wrong. Investigators weighed all of those possibilities and then quickly dismissed them as impossible. There was no way a member of the gentler sex could have been strong enough, either physically nor in constitution, to commit such a heinous crime. They were like, no, it couldn't be, because no woman would like beat a man to death. Like, that's not how women kill people. Women would do it with poison or something. So despite the fact that most of the suspects were women, women suspects weren't investigated because the investigators had automatically ruled them out. Now, Arthur Pennell was no woman. And he sure as hell had motive. On paper, he seemed as strong a suspect, if not stronger, than any of the women on the list. In fact, a lot of people in Buffalo just assumed he was the killer, period. Or at least that he had hired the killer if he hadn't done the deed himself. Arthur was well aware of those assumptions. The shame of it really bothered Arthur. And at one point he wrote this letter to a friend of his in Pennsylvania. And he said, everyone is looking at me. I feel like like the weight of all of this scrutiny is coming down on me and I can't stand it. I, like it's unbearable. And he worried about it. And he was sort of staying away from everybody. This was in like within a week, a week and a half of the murder. He insisted he didn't do it and hoped that at the inquest into Ed's death, he would be able to testify and clear his name. Now, if you're not familiar with death inquests, that's because we don't do them much anymore, which is really kind of a shame, at least in terms of gathering evidence. These were similar to trials in that witnesses testified, but there were none of the guardrails that kept trials in check. If an attorney wanted to ask questions that a trial judge would declare irrelevant, he had a lot more latitude to do so. Basically, the purpose of an inquest was to determine if there had been foul play, which in this case seems a little bit unnecessary because usually, like, if somebody's beaten to death and left in their home, you could probably assume that there had been foul play. But in this case, they wanted to have this hearing and then they wanted to see, all right, should somebody be tried? So it's sort of like a, a step towards indicting somebody, maybe. Arthur was expected to testify at the inquest, as was his wife and Alice and Alice's mother and a bunch of other people. A few days before that was to happen, Arthur felt antsy and told his wife Carrie that he wanted to take a drive. This wasn't unusual for him. He often took car rides to sort of clear his mind when feeling stressed. But Carrie knew he wasn't in the best frame of mind, so she insisted that she go with him. He and his wife got into their car, and they got into an accident that ended their lives. Many townsfolk assumed this was suicide. I mean, the timing just seemed to scream it, right? But witnesses who actually saw the wreck paint a picture that is so bizarre, it defies easy explanation. For starters, it was raining outside, Yet witnesses saw Arthur and Carrie stop the car at one point and take off the car's top so that the rain was pelting them. Yet the impact genuinely looked accidental. Witnesses said a gust of wind blew Arthur's hat from his head, which he reached out to grab, losing control of the car and driving off a cliff. 
It didn't appear intentional, Onlooker said. Arthur had tried to correct himself as his steering wheel veered the wrong way, but he simply couldn't. Still, he was the prime suspect in a murder-making national news. Investigators figured, accident or not, there must be some evidence in Arthur's home that tied him to the crime. But there was nothing. That's not all they searched. They went through his pockets, and they were thinking they were going to find all this evidence. You know, like, oh, I'm going to kill Ed, and I can't live with myself because I killed Ed, and this is why I've done this. And when they looked through it, they found, like, he had cut out, like, pieces of poetry, and those were the things in his wallet. Arthur seemed more like a lovesick puppy than a killer, and yet his death... Put an end to the investigation as it had been going, you know? They were really looking for Arthur to be guilty of this. Despite Arthur and Carrie being too dead to testify, the inquest went on as planned. It's because of that that we have as many details as we do about this case. Among the witnesses who testified were Dr. Howland, the medical examiner, and Dr. Marcy, the family physician who'd suggested that the death be ruled a suicide. The attorneys basically asked Marcy, what the fuck? They asked him, Doctor, how many people do you know who have been murdered and afterwards wrapped their head up in a quilt? And he just turned bright red and didn't have an answer. But they, they were kind of intent on humiliating him for trying, for trying what he was trying to do. The most dramatic, heart-rending testimony came from Alice, the bereaved woman who lost her husband and lover within a two-week span. Just kidding. Alice seemed completely unfazed by both of the deaths. She just had no emotion about it. She never showed any kind of emotion. And it was like, if you felt like you had to break up your family for this man and and you were going to leave your husband for him, you would think that at least for him, there would have been this emotion. There would have been something there. And there was nothing. There was nothing at all. Everything was Arthur's fault. And Ed was just sort of this pesky person. and, And she was just there. And that was it. She was not portrayed sympathetically in the press. She likely would have been had she shown any concern on the stand. But she seemed as affected by these deaths as she might have been the deaths of two strangers a couple of counties over. And the same was true of her mother, Mrs. Hull. She testified that Ed behaved in a way that caused her daughter to cheat on him. And Arthur had seduced Alice. Nothing was Alice's fault whatsoever. You might be wondering if anyone suspected Mrs. Hull. After all, she had a lot to lose if Ed divorced her daughter. The odds of him allowing her to continue living at his home were pretty slim, especially if he ever remarried, which was likely because he was a rich, successful, good-looking man. And it wasn't likely that Alice would remarry someone, certainly not someone of comparable status. If Arthur wasn't willing to divorce Carrie and marry Alice, the odds were... No one else would have her. That's how scandalous it was to be a divorced woman at the time. So, could it have been Mrs. Hull? It's an interesting theory. I want to close with a scene from the inquest that reporters described at the time. It was after Mrs. Hull had taken the stand. She was... This petite Victorian lady who showed up in this long, flowing black dress. She was impeccably dressed as a woman in mourning, complete with a black muffler around her neck and a big black hat with decorative plumes and a black veil that she lifted to speak to the court. She gave her testimony, which struck most present as awfully cold-hearted, if not outright cruel, and then she left the stand. 
she had this big thick veil that she had you know pushed up while she was testifying and before she put it back down one of the reporters was watching her and just saw her smile and it was just the creepy feeling that she was somehow at least glad that ed had died that way like maybe she did it maybe she didn't do it but she seemed like she was glad it had gotten done one way or another regardless because investigators at the time were so damn sure that a woman was incapable of such violence, they didn't bother looking into her. No one was ever questioned again in the case, so we'll never know the truth. What we do know is that someone in Buffalo, New York, got away with one of the highest profile murders of 1903. To research this episode, I read Kimberly Tilly's book, Cold Heart, which, by the way, is subtitled The Great Unsolved Mystery of Turn-of-the-Century Buffalo, but I didn't want to tell you that earlier. I also want to thank Tilly for letting me interview her personally, and I read contemporary news coverage. And that's about it, because even though this case made front pages nationwide back in the day, this one, more than most, has truly been lost to time. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page.